today we're going to look at a passage from 1 John. Next week, Dwight Brown will be preaching. And then the week after that, we have someone from Life Network here to talk about the sanctity of life. So just to give you a little preview of where we're going, uh, I'm going to read from 1 John chapter 3. And then we will pray and we will look at this together. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Father, we look to your word today we celebrate your salvation. We celebrate not only have you saved us from the penalty of sin, but you've saved us from its power. That is part of the Christmas story. Would you teach us afresh and fill us all with your spirit and give us courage to fight for righteousness? For you are worthy, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's Christmas time. And those of you who are newer around here, you have a, uh, I have a special treat for you. Uh, this is my annual reminder to the body here at Front Range Alliance Church that Christmas is not cute. See? Thank you, Barb. Christmas is not cute. Christmas is not about cute little pudgy angels named Clarence who have to earn their wings, right? That's not what it's all about. If you read the Bible, you know that whenever an angel appears... He's never pudgy, and he's never cute, and no one ever says, oh, I'm not sure if you're an angel or not. They fall on their face in terror because angels are terrifying, right? So Christmas is not cute. It's not about a little baby, ultimately. So I need to remind you again today that Christmas is not cute. I love Christmas, by the way. Don't misunderstand me. 
is just, it's all the sentimentality that so easily robs us of the seriousness of it. But chestnuts roasting on an open fire, great, do it. Put wreaths all over your house and enjoy eggnog and celebrations, all wonderful. But we must make sure we don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this world, as we've been saying over and over again already in this service, to die and to rise again. None of that is cute. It's very serious business. That's why he came. Now, in the passage I read to you, in, uh, in verse 8 there, uh, I need to drill down on one little technical thing grammatically before we get to the broader point. It says in my, the, what I read to you that Jesus appeared, the Son of God appeared. Most of your Bibles probably say that as well. The word technically is in passive voice, and I'm sure I could ask any of you the significance of the passive voice, and you could answer the question, but I won't take the time to do that. It, it, is, it, it has a slightly different angle. It might be better translated, the Son of God was manifested or was revealed. And that's a subtle difference, I get it. But here's the difference. Uh, if, if this hasn't already happened for you, sometime in the next few days, there is going to be a, a group of boxes appearing under your Christmas tree, right? They're just gonna show up there. That's what appearing is. They, they weren't there and now they are, they're appearing. But inside the box is something that right now exists but it has not been revealed to you what is in it. See the difference between appearing and being made manifest or being revealed? So uh, right now there, are no, there have been no boxes that have appeared under my Christmas tree with my name on it, at least that I have found. But I'm in faith believing that in the next few days there will be a box, and, and probably what will happen is as I watch and look at that box for a couple days and I think, oh, I wonder what's in there, eventually on, on Friday I'll be able to take the, the lid off and see, and what will be revealed to me are the keys to a new truck. <laughs> because I've been watching the commercials. And on the commercials, I get Krista a dog and she buys me a truck. That's how this is gonna work, right? And it'll be manifested to me. Please do not spend money on a truck. <laughs> Or a dog. I'm not going to buy you a dog. The Son of God was manifested, was appeared. The Son of God has existed eternally. The Son of God is what we call the second person of the triune God. We're just saying we believe God the Father, God the Son. The Son has existed eternally. John, in his gospel, calls it the Word, calls him the Word but he was manifested, he was revealed as a man approximately 2,000 years ago. And why did he come? Why is it so significant that he took on human flesh, that he became a man? Well, there are many answers to that question, but the one John gives us here in this text is that he came, he was, he was manifested to us to destroy the works of the devil. There is nothing cute about the works of the devil. We don't get a lot of devil at the Christmas story. He doesn't make an appearance in very many of the Christmas hymns and the carols. He doesn't make it into nativity scenes. He doesn't make it into the Christmas movies. 
But he's very much part of the Christmas story and the need for Jesus to come and take on human flesh. That's what, that's what John says here. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Well, that, that begs the question, what are the works of the devil? Why did Jesus appearing destroy those works? Oh, there, there are lots of places we could go, but one story that kind of captures the heart of it for me is when Jesus is, is uh, he asked the disciples a question. He says, who do you hear? What's the, what's the rumor mill out there? What are people saying about me? Who do they say that I am? And, you know, some say you're Jeremiah the prophet, some say you're Elijah the prophet, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. And, and Jesus looks at his disciples and says, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter speaks up immediately, kind of out of character for him. He speaks up immediately, and he says, I know who you are. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, blessed are you, Simon. The very next paragraph, the next story in Matthew's gospel Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And Peter grabs him by the arm, pulls him aside, and says, Lord, stop this nonsense. Stop talking like that. You're not going to die. I'm not going to let you die. And Jesus says to him, Peter, actually, it's not what he called him. He didn't say, Simon, you don't know what you're talking about. Do you remember what he called him? Get behind me, Satan. I've been called a few names in my life. Maybe you've been called a few names in your life. Have you ever, anybody called, have you ever had anybody call you Satan? This is Jesus. He looks at Peter. He says, you're the devil. Why? He says, because you are a stumbling block to me. I'm on a mission. I am here to serve my father. And he has given me a task to do. And you're putting out an obstacle there for me to trip over because you, and this is the key, you have in mind not the things of God. You have in mind the things of man. You're acting like Satan when you're more concerned with your own thoughts, your own passions, your own missions rather than God's. You are doing Satan's work for him. Get behind me. I think that captures the heart of what Satan has been doing from the very beginning. He is seeking to distract human beings from the path God has laid for us to pursue our own ends. Isn't that what he did in the Garden of Eden? Isn't that what he did at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3? God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in this wonderful place, this garden, and he gives them a mission. Re procreate, make more human beings, fill this earth with people, and take care of the garden, cultivate it, protect it, grow more fruit, raise the crops, raise the, the animals. And all I'm telling you not to do 
Just don't eat of that one tree. That's it. That was their mission. Satan shows up. Hey, Eve. You going to live your whole life serving God, really? I mean, has God really said, right? It goes straight to the word of God. Has God said these things? You know, Eve, God is holding out on you. You can't trust him. God knows if you eat of that one forbidden tree, you're going to be like God. He doesn't want any competition. It's good for you to eat that tree. Then you can be the master of your own domain here. You can decide what you're going to do. You can decide good and evil. Eve, what do you want? Why are you so worried about what God wants? And now Eve's perception of that fruit changes and she says, oh, that looks like it would be good for me to eat. It would satisfy my appetite and I can be like God. She reaches out, she gets the fruit, she eats it, and she hands it to her husband who's standing right there, who's supposed to be protecting her from all enemies, including the snake, and he eats it too. And now both the man and the woman have chosen their own path rather than the one God laid out for them. And we know the story. We know the impact. They have now introduced death and perpetual sin forever on planet Earth. Well, not forever, but that's getting ahead of the story. And what happens to their first offspring, their first son? He follows in their path and does not choose God's plan. He chooses his own plan and he kills his brother. He's been doing that forever. There is a, a fascinating account in the Old Testament of what Satan is all about. It's in this book called Job. I don't know if you've read it recently. The first couple chapters are intriguing in so many ways. Job was a very wealthy man. God had blessed him and blessed him. He was, he was rich. He had a great family. And he was a man of great character and, and scrupulous. After these big feasts that his family would put on, he would offer sacrifices for his children to God just in case they had committed sins that they had not confessed and he wanted to go before God on their behalf and ask his forgiveness for them. Very scrupulous man. But what's fascinating is this encounter that takes place in heaven. Here's, here's how it goes. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. That, the sons of God there is just another way to describe angelic beings. So these angelic beings, the angels, are in the presence of God in heaven. It says, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, for there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now you need to dig into that a little bit and ponder what's going on there. When, when, when God says to, to Satan, where have you been? It's not like he didn't know. He said, what are you doing, Satan? What has been your mission recently? And when he says, I'm out roaming the earth, you know, just watching around, he's not just observing. The, the language there communicates he is on a mission 
of, of reconnaissance. He's going around looking for people who might be easy prey. That's what's included in the language. He has been traveling around looking at that person and that person and that person and seeking after those that he might be able to attack. God, of course, knows that. He says, so, hey, Satan, where have you placed your focus? Who have you picked out? Have you considered, in the, in the Hebrew there is more of a, have you set your heart on my servant Job? Because he's a blameless man. He's righteous. He fears me, and he serves me faithfully. Is that the one you're after? And Satan basically says, no, because you've created this hedge around him. Well, what do you mean by that, Satan? Well, you've blessed him like crazy. He's got everything a man could want. Of course he's going to serve you. He's had no hardship. His life is easy. He's only serving you, God, because you've made it easy on him. But you take away his, his treasures, and he will turn on you in a moment. And God says, all right, I'll take that bet. You can do whatever you want to him except hurting his person. Immediately, Satan leaves. He's like, yeah, this will be great. And you read on in the story, and it is fascinating. And someday we'll come back and we'll study this more in-depthly. But Satan actually is given the ability to stir up lightning and wind tornado-like winds to destroy Job's property. I'm, I'm not sure of all the implications of that. And he's able to enter the hearts of, of uh, raiders nearby, of marauders, and, and stir them to come and kill Job's children. all the reports come back to Job and he says your, your stuff is destroyed and your children are dead so then chapter 2 begins similar way the sons of God are there before him and, and Satan joins him and basically I have the same kind of dialogue and Satan says well yeah of course Job's still going to be faithful to you because he has his health but you take away his health and you'll see he won't care about you God says, okay, I'll take that bet too. Do whatever you want to him, you just can't kill him. And Satan is enabled by God to bring some disease, some plague, some leprosy or something on Job that makes him absolutely miserable. All for the purpose of trying to dissuade Job from remaining faithful to the mission God has given him and to serve his own interests so that he'll turn his back on God, defy God, and sin against God and say, I'm done with God. And you probably know the rest of the story. Job never does that. He remains true to the end. Oh, he has some lessons to learn. And the end of Job is fascinating when God shows up and addresses him, but all the while he remains committed 
to God. Fast forward back to Peter and Jesus. The disciples are asking Jesus, who's the greatest in your kingdom, Jesus? Can I sit at your right hand? No, no, I want your right hand. Okay, then can I have your left hand? I mean, the disciples in their sort of faith, I mean, they do believe Jesus is gonna bring the kingdom, but also in their arrogance start vying for this position of honor on his right or his left. And Jesus says, no, no, it's not like that. You need to simmer down. God decides who's at my right, who's my left. And in the midst of that, he says to the disciples, he speaks to Peter, but it's in the plural. He says, Peter, Simon, Simon, he says, Satan has demanded to sift you all like wheat. Familiar with that passage? It sounds very much like Job. Like Satan is, is up there in the presence of God again, and he sees the disciples following faithfully after Jesus, and Satan says, you know, God, the only reason those disciples are following Jesus is because you're protecting them and you're caring for them. Let me prove whether or not they're loyal to you. Let me at them. And the phrase Jesus uses there, he's demanded to sift you like wheat, to put you in the big mill and stomp all over you to see if you're really wheat or if you're chaff. Imagine being a disciple and Jesus saying, this conversation is going on up there in the heavens and you don't know about this conversation and you have an adversary, an enemy who wants to come and just wipe you out. Well, we know what they do. We know that all of them turn on Jesus. Judas commits the big one. Satan enters into him and he betrays Jesus to his enemies. All the other 11, though they don't, abandon him in the same way they do turn their back on him and flee when he's arrested. And Peter, of course, is the one who three times denies him. And in that encounter, when he says, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, Jesus turns and says now singularly to, to Peter, but I have prayed for you. The reason Satan is not going to be able to defeat you, Peter, is because I have prayed for you. And you're going to trip and fall, but you're going to get back up. And when you have turned, strengthen the brothers. So fast forward a few years, Peter is writing his first letter to the church. And in that letter, he says to Christians, the devil is like a roaring lion roaming about to and fro on earth seeking those whom he may devour. My kids showed me a, a video clip the other day. I almost brought it to, to show it here, but I couldn't decide if it would be too much for the ch children or not. It's this fascinating video of a lion and there's a, a herd of wildebeests running across the plain. And I was fascinated to watch because there were dozens of them and this one lion on the prowl and I'm watching trying to figure out how does he decide which one he's gonna get. And there's just a bunch of these wildebeests flying by and he's cruising along, cruising along and he picks one out finally 
and he goes up and he lays his jaws into the throat of that wildebeest and just hangs on, and this giant animal eventually falls over in the clutches of the, of the mouth of this lion, this huge beast that is five or six or seven times the size of the lion. It's just interesting in God's providence for me to see that video and have this picture in my mind. That's the picture of Satan. He is running around looking. He's looking for prey. He's looking for someone who is weak, who is not guarded. You remember Paul's admonition, put on the full armor of God? Why? Because the enemy is scheming, and he's firing his darts, and he's looking for people who don't have the armor on, who are weak, who are easy prey, so he can come and sink his jaws into your throat. That's the imagery Peter uses looking for people who are not ready, who are not true, who are not focused on the plan of God, who are easily susceptible to be led to their own desires outside of God's plan. He tried this on Jesus himself. Jesus is born He lives 30 years. We don't know much about what's going on during those 30 years. Then he shows up and he's baptized and immediately the Spirit of God leads him out into the desert for a particular purpose. He led him into the desert to be tempted by the devil. That's what the scripture says. He's out there for 40 days and he eats nothing. He's starving. And then Satan shows up. And Satan has a couple purposes. One of them, I'm convinced that Satan doesn't actually know for sure if Jesus is the Son of God, so he's testing him. But he's also trying to lead him to defy God. And so he says, hey, Jesus, if you are the Son of God, you're hungry, you're God, you should be able to turn this rock into bread, because God could do that. Jesus, do what I tell you to do. Turn that rock into bread. And what's Jesus' response? No. Unlike Eve and Adam, Jesus says, I'm not listening to your word, snake. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I won't follow you, Satan. I follow God's word. Satan took him up at the top of the temple and had him look at it all over Jerusalem, all the surrounding land, says, this has all been entrusted to me. I rule this, this world, and I'll give it to you, Jesus. You just got to do one little thing. Just bow the knee here. Look, there's nobody here. It's just you and me. I won't even tell anybody. Just one quick little genuflection right here and it's all yours. Jesus says, no. It is written, the word of God says, you shall worship God and him only. I will not do what you tell me to do, Satan. He says, all right, well, throw yourself down from here and the Bible says, the word of God says, 
You keep quoting the word of God, Satan. I mean, Jesus. Well, I know it too. The word of God says he's going to send his angels down to save you if you're the Messiah. So just do it. Let's see. And Jesus says, no. Because the word of God says you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What he did there as the second Adam was say, I am here on a mission to obey my father. Do you remember in our study of John how many times Jesus said, I am here to do the works of my father. That's all I care about. That's all. My mission is to please the father. And I will not be distracted by anything or anyone. He keeps saying to Satan, I refuse to listen to your words. No matter the cost, the path I'm on, he says, leads to my death. But I am here to please the Father, not you. Get away from me, Satan. Which is exactly the terminology James will tell us will cause him to flee. Resist the devil and he will run away. Imagine, you're a wildebeest. You and I, we are wildebeests. It's one of the nicest things anybody's ever called you, right? You're a wildebeest. You're out there in the, in the wild roaming around and he is looking for you to turn away from it, to be weak so he can snatch you. And James says, you, this wildebeest, can turn to that, that lion and say, get away. And he'll flee from you. How do we flee? I mean, how do we resist? We stay true to the word of God. We say it's not about what happens to me. It's not about my mission. It's not about my glory. It's not about my comfort. It's about serving God. So what about you, wildebeest? How is the devil seeking to distract you from commitment to God? What's he doing right now? What temptations is he putting out there for you? What weaknesses is he seeking to exploit in you where he might get a hold? Where do you know what God wants you to be doing? And yet you're tempted to be more concerned with your own plans. It could be actual plans. It could be relationships. Paul describes one temptation this way. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because when we do that, when we hold on to our bitterness and resentment, it gives the devil a foothold. It's a chink in our armor. It's a weakness. Someone has wronged you, you think, and you hang on to that. Satan says, aha, the wildebeest has left his neck exposed, and I'm going in for the kill. Deal with it today, he says, and let it go or it will consume you and destroy you, maybe your family, and who knows how many other people. Because he is still a roaring lion. And if we let him, he'll sink his teeth into our throat.
Maybe it's other temptations. Maybe it's other sins. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Now let me read from 1 John again with all this background and see what John is getting at. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. What's he alluding to there? What does it mean to be a child of God? He's talking about the new birth. It's the same thing that Jesus talked about in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. In order to be in the kingdom, you have to have experienced a new birth. The Spirit of God takes out your old hard heart and replaces it with a soft heart that wants to please God. He takes out your old spirit and gives you a new spirit. You are a new person, a new individual, the new man that Christ has come to create. And that new man is a child of God. And such we are, he says. For this reason, the world does not know us because it didn't know him. The world didn't know Jesus. They didn't receive Jesus. They didn't accept Jesus. The world doesn't care about Jesus. And therefore, they don't know us when we're born again because they can't relate. We're in different families. Beloved, now, he says, we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared or been revealed what we will be. We don't know what this is going to look like in the next age. It's going to be something, but we're not really sure. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, like Jesus, because we will see him just as he is, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. What does it mean to be a child of God? It means we are pursuing righteousness and purity. We don't give in to the devil anymore. And now John sets up his famous dichotomies. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. If your lifestyle, if your habits are sin, then you're lawless and you're not a child of God. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. That's the same word. He was manifested to take away sins. Now, we almost always think that means he took our penalty, which the Bible does teach very clearly. But that's not the whole story. Here in John, he's not talking primarily about the transfer of our sins to Jesus and him taking the punishment. He's talking about taking away from us the power of sin. He came to take away Satan's ability to enslave us to sin and our own desire's ability to enslave us to sin. We are freed from enslavement to sin and now freed to serve him. That's what John's talking about. And in him, in Jesus, there is no sin. No one who abides in him, no one who abides, who remains in Jesus, sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now you're thinking, wait a minute, I've sinned. Maybe I sinned yesterday. Does that mean I don't know him? 
Now again, as you study John, you realize he speaks in very stark terms, but he's talking about a lifestyle here. He's talking about ongoing giving into temptation. Because earlier in the same letter, he says, if you deny that you sin, you're a liar. But if you are a new creature in Christ, if you have been born of his spirit, you cannot and must not and will not continue to live enslaved to sin. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. We've been born of God. Our lives become more and more righteous because we're like him. The Holy Spirit is actually making us holy. That's his job. The Son of God appeared or was manifest for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. It is not possible for Satan to defeat us if we are new creatures in Christ. He may get a hold now and then, and when we leave ourselves unprotected, he can get a stronghold and cause a lot of damage. But ultimately, if you are a child of God, he cannot lead you into full and final destruction. You will resist him eventually. No one who is born of God practices sin. Why? Because his seed abides in him. This is very simple, scientific, biological, reproductive terminology John is using here. The Greek word is actually sperma. Just as God the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in the womb of Mary, he is saying spiritually God has given you new birth. His seed, his, his spiritual seed has given you new birth and you cannot continue in perpetual sin. Because you're born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. By what? Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And John's going to go on to amplify that. What is the, the obvious trait of a true born-again believer? He or she loves other believers. We love Christians. We love the body of Christ. Because we've been born into the family. And we may have our scuffles among brothers and sisters, but they're not ongoing. We don't let them destroy us. Because Jesus showed us the way. He was betrayed by his brothers and he forgave them. And he says, now you go love one another just as I have loved you and have given myself for you. So here's a good test for you. Right now as you sit here this morning, what's going on in your heart and your mind these days toward other Christians? Are you acting with hatred? toward a man or a woman? Are 
you acting with hatred toward a brother or sister in Christ who happens to live in your household? Or a neighbor? Someone in this body, someone in another local church? Someone on Facebook? If you are born of God, the devil is not your master. The Son of God appeared to destroy his works in our lives. Paul says it this way, you were united to Christ at baptism in his death and his resurrection. And just as he came back to life physically, we come to life spiritually. And the fruit of that is love. And no one who is born of God lives in hate, but in love for other Christians. Christmas is not cute. It's not pudgy. It's not sentimental. But it's real and it's important. And the love and the joy and the hope and the peace that we are to express at Christmas is a profound love, joy, peace, and hope. Because the enemy has been destroyed. Our Savior has come, our King has come, and he's given us the power to walk in love. Brother Dave's going to come and pray for us that we might live as people who no longer are enslaved to the devil, but who live in the light of Jesus.